Hi, I'm Heather Stark. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. My guest, Kylie Hogan. Kylie, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, you're very welcome. Thanks for coming because, um, Kylie, uh, let me just explain a little bit about Kylie. Kylie's been working uh, in the domestic violence field for more than 10 years, and uh, it started when she was in college, and she engaged in coursework and internships, and she did all those kinds of things. And uh, over the years, she continued to strengthen her services and access for the survivors. And uh, recently, she moved to Washington, D.C. Well, recently to me, it was about, what, seven years ago, Kylie? And uh, that's when she started, started working for DC safe and uh, she has done everything from be a crisis team lead advocate to supervising and she's currently the crisis intervention team director supervising a staff of 11 so thank you Kylie that that gives us your bona fides as they used to say um, <laughs> the reason that I sought out Kylie is um, more information I mean we are going through a time right now um, like most people have never seen the coronavirus, the, I guess it's not, you're not supposed to call it that anymore. You're supposed to call it the COVID-19, but we all know what we're talking about. And we know that anything like this and the restrictions that come with it are going to put extra burden on already existing problems like domestic violence or intimate partner violence or gendered violence, whatever word you want to use for it. Kylie, what have you seen uh, with DC Safe? Sure. So um, we are actually quite lucky to be a pretty dynamic agency with a couple of different programming, um, particularly what I do most specifically is doing a lot of our telephonic work. We have a 24-7 um, response line uh, where we're able to kind of manage people's uh, needs 24-7, um, particularly their crisis needs. Um, but we also had some in-person services that uh, do quite a bit of work throughout the year. Um, so when we first got alerts, we really, uh, about kind of the, the closures and the fact that this was going to be an ongoing health risk for people meeting in person, we really had to reconfigure pretty quickly, um, both for our employees' sake, but then also for our clients' sake to give us some more bandwidth over the phone. Um, so that was really the first thing we did is really start start giving out equipment, <laughs> getting advocates on the phone so that we could handle what we knew were going to be a lot of questions and a lot of more uh, intense work on the phone with people. It's not always our, our ideal way to work with people, but we wanted it to still be available and be robust. Um, we've seen kind of an interesting pattern of call volume kind of going up and down, um, particularly around announcements get made and around things change and questions come up and people don't know where to turn for answers. And we've really done our best to try to be that place where we, we have the answers, um, we have different information on this resource looks like this now and this is how you access this these days um, while trying to make sure that our services remain consistent. So we're continuing to place people. Um, we're continuing to work with people on filing things like orders of protection. We're continuing to work people on what their general safety planning is. Um, so, so I think we've felt fairly blessed in the midst of the chaos and that we really are able to be dynamic and flexible. I think what we've also seen though is that for more formal institutions and our agency tends to sit at the nexus of some of those more formal institutions, um, 
having to be flexible is new to them. <laughs> and so we've really had to roll with them as they figure out what exactly does the new normal look like um, and be as flexible as we can. Okay. Um, in, can you give me an example of that, the need for flexibility that wasn't there before? Sure. So um, typically in Washington, D.C., when somebody wants something like an order of protection, um, there are two different locations people can go. You file, but you have to file in person. Um, there's quite a chunk of paperwork that you have to get through, um, and it, it requires that more formal process. So when we found out that, okay, we're not seeing people in person anymore, and I would say probably they were seeing between the two different locations somewhere between 20 and 50 people a day. It wasn't a small number. Um, now we're looking at, well, then how do people still have access to these orders that can help them with things like temporary custody, keeping someone away from someone's work, maybe vacating somebody from a residence if they're not safe? How can they still have that access when we can't uh, have someone formally sworn in <laughs> where we can't have someone see a judge face to face. All those things that maybe kind of mean more, I think, to those more formal systems. Um, and so it's really been a journey over the past three weeks of um, how can we do, we can still do this and we're going to still do this and, and what works um, for people who are really not used to making that, that shift in gears. Well, and I think that, you know, from my limited experience with courts, uh, they are not known for flexibility. And to some extent it makes sense, and I understand kind of having the formal process, having it feel formal, but we are not living in those times. <laughs> yeah, well, no kidding. And uh, to be honest with you, my dirty little secret here, <clears throat> excuse me, my – my kids always laugh and they, they always say, I'd like to know what kind of a world you baby boomers grew up in where you have the flexibility and customer service and all this other stuff, you know. Um, <laughs> but, you know, for people, I think, of my generation, oh, my gosh, I don't have the patience for rigidity and adherence to procedure. It's like, come on, use your, use, you know, use your head and let's do what needs to be done and accomplish something. And it seems to me like the way of the world right now is it's more about procedure than it is about outcome mm -hmm. and results. So what you're describing... Yeah, I think that's often a, a, a bit of a conflict between advocacy organizations and those formal institutions. They're like, whatever, we can figure it out later. We're just going to do it now. And that makes a lot yeah. of other people very nervous. <laughs> well, and I was going to say, how are the courts especially reacting to this new need? I mean, are they... Are they uh, able to roll with it? Are they so stuck in rigidity that they can't think of solutions? How, how, how are the courts in your area doing this? No, they've been um, surprisingly able to roll with it. I think that it took a couple weeks to figure out exactly what it looked like. Um, we uh, had started kind of as a pilot actually about, I want to say a year ago, don't quote me on that, I'm horrible on dates, um, rolling out an online access form for people who maybe wanted to file an order of protection, but they didn't want to spend all day in the courthouse with the paperwork so they could do that at their leisure and then come into court to access what they'd already drafted. So that was already available, and then it just kind of pushed it to know we're really doing this and we're doing it now. <laughs> um, so we've had people been able to access that online form. I feel really blessed because we've been able to be there for people who maybe don't 
have the technological savvy <laughs> or the comfort in filling out court documents themselves to be able to help people with that over over the phone, which again, being able to throw some extra robust and repetitive staff on the line has helped us be available for that. Um, and then it was just a matter of trying to work out the kinks of, you know, is a face-to-face -face of some sort, even if that's via video phone, totally necessary? Do we need to record all of the hearings for temporary orders? Do we, you know, just it's taken some time for the, the clerk's office and the judges to figure out what they're comfortable with and, and do we need to do this? Can we throw it out? Is it making it more cumbersome? I think today where we are has worked pretty well. Well, people can fill them out. They can still request temporary um, relief that can be started the same day. They're able to do hearings over the phone. Um, we also have a remote site set up in one of the police stations so that if someone feels they need to have someone in person or they need to be more face-to-face, -face, we can meet them there and help facilitate that process or send them there and facilitate that process. Um, so we've really gotten pretty pretty flexible, I think beyond what the initial planning thought was possible. Um, so we're seeing those be able to go through. I think it's definitely a, a strain on people to, to now um, not necessarily because they don't want to or they're not willing to, but if you're so used to working in a certain pattern, to switch everything to a new pattern. And then, of course, just not being face-to-face. -face. So I think that it's, it's taken some time and it's still a little, uh, can be a little straining on people, but it, we're getting it done, which is, I think, what we always push for. <laughs> Well, and it's uh, it's one thing. Another aspect of this uh, whole situation is it's one thing um, to be able to file a paper, and it's another thing to have it acted upon. Are you seeing the mm -hmm. courts being responsive to these? Uh, uh, are, are the courts? I mean, they're dealing with everything that everybody else is dealing with, mm -hmm. um, and uh, are are the courts able to be or willing to be as responsive? Um, to these online and these new methodology for requests for protection orders, et cetera? Yeah, so we're definitely seeing a good response in terms of um, temporary orders, so being able to put something in place immediately. Um, they've also been flexible. Uh, typically in D.C., the statute um, limits any temporary order to 14 days without a hearing, but that has been suspended for now, and we're not bringing anybody back into hearings until May. Um, so they've been flexible about that, and we're seeing those orders get granted. Um, I think particularly in, in the District of Columbia, housing <laughs> is a huge, huge um, barrier for a lot of people. Um, and so being able to take control of some of their housing, if, if somebody was staying with them more, more informally, um, has been a big benefit, being able to do things like vacate people from a residence. So we are seeing that being granted. Um, a lot of the enforcement, of course, falls back onto the police department to actually go, about, go out and actually enforce those vacate orders and um, get those into play. Um, I think that in a time of limited resources, I think that probably feels different to a lot of officers, but I'm, I'm thankful as of now at least that we haven't got a lot of pushback from you know, this order says this person has to go somewhere, but where do they go? Um, we, we seem to be, for most of our cases, rolling, around, rolling along as normally as we would typically see them. I wanted to ask you about police response. I mean, I'm hearing from many, many areas of the country, including my own in Seattle, where police response is delayed um, or mm -hmm. even non-existent uh, for certain crimes, um, uh, certain situations. 
Um, what are you seeing there as for re- police response? Have they prioritized um, um, intimate partner violence in any way, or what are, what are you seeing? So typically, if someone's reporting some sort of domestic violence response, that usually raises up the category of response just in, in general. So I think those things are still in place. I do think we are seeing and hearing about more delayed response times, not necessarily because they've downgraded the response, just because the staffing. Um, I know that a couple of weeks ago, at least, I was reading in the paper that there were at least 70 officers who were quarantined. Now, we have up somewhere around three to 4,000 total officers, and then, you know, the bulk of that being in patrol. But if you've got 70 officers, that's still a lot to take out of a regular rotation of covering um, seven districts over 24-7. So I think that just staffing-wise, the response has been a little bit slower than we would be used to. Um, and I think just possibly a little bit shorter kind of less robust in the sense, um, I think a good example that I can can share is that our response line is different than I think what people think about when they think about a DV hotline, in that what we really have done is set up a line and provided our number to first responders, police officers, hospitals, social service workers. Um, so we get a fairly robust amount of officers who call us after a DV incident to say this has happened, this person is saying they need this, um, here's all the report information, can you call them? And typically that's how the process has worked. Antidotally, when I'm looking through our, our referrals, um, I'm seeing a lot more, the officer gave me this phone number and said to call you. So maybe they're not able to slow down and actually do it themselves anymore. They're giving out the number more, just kind of speeding along, which I'm glad they're doing it. We lose a little bit of something in being able to call and say, hey, this officer was worried. We just want to see if you're safe. Um, So I think we we are losing some of that. There's a cost, isn't there? Um, Mm -hmm. What about the shelters? Um, are you seeing uh, uh, people staying away or are you seeing more people in shelters? Uh, do you have a sense of that? Hmm. So I think we're probably seeing, um, I mean, we have stayed pretty full, <laughs> but we try to be extremely um, flexible and available for that. Um, and and my understanding is that we're we're operating in some of the most fluid ways compared to some of the other people, um, other shelter operations out there. Um, we, we've seen, I think our, our demand is pretty um, steady. Um, we've tried not to be too limited, but we are being a little bit more narrow in terms of trying to prioritize clients that we really know are at high risk. Um, as opposed to maybe people who there's a homeless element to the domestic violence, but we're not so worried about the stalking piece of it. Um, they don't necessarily need a confidential shelter as opposed to just shelter. Um, so we've been negotiating that. Um, we've been fairly successful. I think that, again, everybody's doing a lot of this work telephonically, which can be really hard. There's a lot of phone tag coming into play. Um, but we've been able to be pretty, pretty consistent. I think what, it, what people are finding frustrating and more um, more of a barrier and more difficult is that people really are limiting how much time they spend face-to-face with their clients. 
and you do lose something with that. So our shelter, we typically don't staff 24 seven. We have apartment style units, um, but we usually have staff there seven days a week. So whenever clients are feeling like they're ready to talk, they can drop in and the, and the availability is pretty robust. And we've really tried to limit our four hours of contact. That's what's been recommended. Um, and it just means there's not as consistent, there's not a, as much opportunity for people to just say, hey, what's next? Um, we are a crisis shelter. We kind of max out around 20 or 30 days. We have flexibility there, but that's our typical length of stay. Um, our idea being, let's give you a place to just sit down and catch your breath, and then let's go over what resources we have to keep you going. Um, and I think that with so much going on, it's so much harder to try to think about tomorrow just because yesterday looked different and today looks different than that. And two weeks ago, it was totally different. And I think that that's going to be something that we see develop as we keep moving through this for the next month or possibly more. Well, even though your shelters are more of a, a short term than long term, um, do you see, um, well, how are you managing um, the health of people who need to uh, shelter? I mean, how are you sure, screening? So. Are you, how are you taking care of that, that particular issue? Absolutely. So I think we we ourselves are very lucky because we do have apartment style units. Um, so when we're taking people in, we've got the ability to limit really both our contact with them, but then their contact with other people. Um, so we don't have to worry about, um, you know, when I was in Arkansas, we were in a formal, uh, former hospital. So everybody had their own room, but then they shared all the common space. We don't even have to worry about that. Um, so we've been lucky enough to not have any confirmed cases or people who need to quarantine. But, you know, we've been trying to, instead of having a bunch of different clients come into our office, we've been trying to go to their rooms um, and go in. You know, we we were able to get some PPE for the staff that's there um, that we're working on handing out. Um, so, you know, eliminating everybody's exposure to one another. Um, we're trying to make sure that if we do end up with someone, we've got kind of a plan around how we can manage via phone and via being able to drop things out things outside doors and not have to come into so much contact how can we do you know just paperwork right because you don't even want to be necessarily handling everything together so how can we have them sign it and then work on getting it at a point where we can do it in a more safe way um, I know that the other shelters kind of in particularly the homeless shelter the, the homeless systems here have implemented plans where they're you know doing regular um, screening for high temperatures, they're asking about symptoms, um, if there are people who are reporting those symptoms, getting them kind of directly hooked into, um, you know, medical needs, and then they have plans kind of on how to help those people shelter in place. Um, so I think it's something, again, everybody's talking about, um, everybody's got their plans. I think the plans are evolving and that's something we've really seen. Okay, this seems to work, but ooh, now this new element is in here. So maybe we should do this instead. And I have been, um, you know, actually relatively impressed by people's ability to be flexible and try to think creatively and not get too stuck in their box as they keep trying to, like I said, just make it work. Mm. What about your staff? 
Have you had um, illnesses within your staff that you have to deal with? Um, we've had at least one. What I'm asking is uh, what I what my I think um, if I can articulate it a little better. Um, are you being burdened by all of this stuff as well as a reduction in staff at this point? We've actually been fairly lucky. Um, I know that we've had at least one person who's had a suspected, um, and they are working on getting. They're working on getting well now. Um, I think what I've seen is, you know, it's it's been a fairly brutal cold and just cold and flu season before this started, um, where you know we had just a couple. Um, and I think anybody who's done social service work kind of knows when it hits cold and flu season, it just goes through and through the office sometimes in ways that just are inexplicable. Um, and so I think before we came into this, we had that. And then I think as this has started talking, when people do feel a little under the weather, everybody gets much more nervous about something that you know, is maybe just a cold or is maybe just a flu. Um, you know, we one of the very first things we did even before we shut down the office was um, our board of directors and our executive director and director of operations looked at our sick leave policy and instituted very specific COVID quarantine sick leave kind of above and beyond what you might get um, just to make sure that people feel protected and supported and that, you know, if you get sick, it's not your job. You're, we're going to support you as you do what you need to do to keep the rest of us healthy, <laughs> um, which I think was really appreciated by staff and I think made everybody feel like, okay, I can take a deep breath. Um, we can be sick if, if we're going to be. Mm-hmm. One of the things that um, I, I worry about during all of this is the individual who is stuck at home with an abuser. Mm-hmm. Do you have staff? Can people call in? Uh, do you have ideas? What What are you telling these people? Uh, perhaps they can't go to a shelter. Perhaps they can't. They're not ready to leave. Uh, what are you telling folks who are stuck uh, and isolated yeah. with an abuser? Absolutely. We actually just... Um, We've been trying to put out some regular kind of trainings and training updates for our staff just to keep morale up, keep people interested, and really talk about things like this. And and we just recently did a training last, um, the Thursday before last, talking a lot about this. Um, You know, trying to be creative is one of the biggest things that I personally think any advocate that's going to be successful and be able to keep with this career. you've got to bring the creativity because if it's not, if it's not this illness, it's going to be something else. Each person's situation is unique. So, um, you know, I've encouraged people with that, but we've also, you know, talked about um, what I was talking to another staff member about, really your old school advocacy and thinking about, are there safe places in your house? Um, Can you um, take a walk? Um, you know, I think we're still we're still allowed out for exercise. Yay. <laughs> um, who do you have in your in your neighborhood? Um, you know, what can we do with the kids? What can you tell the kids? Um, where might you, you know, I think one of the big differences I've seen in the last 10 years is everybody's got a cell phone now and everybody's got an old dead cell phone that they keep somewhere. Can we get that charged up so you have a backup way to reach out for help if you need it? Um, so just 
you know, trying to be as creative as, as possible with people. And with your services, um, you, you said you, are, you do take calls. You have your, uh, your hotline, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, we answer the phone 24 hours a day. <laughs> that's like I I do that too and I don't even run a hotline um, <laughs> um, are, are you seeing calls up down uh, about the same what are you what are you seeing um, I think overall the total volume has been roughly on par with where we were last year what I've seen though is that the day-to-day again tends to fluctuate pretty um, more than it would be expected. You know, normally we have kind of a predictable pattern of Monday being very busy and Friday being very busy um, and kind of going down over the weekend. And now it's just more a little bit unpredictable. And I think what I've seen is it kind of follows the news. So whenever there's kind of a new announcement about we're, we're doing this sort of shutdown of services, we're now these services are shut down and the schools are out for this much longer. I think we tend to see a bit of a spike as pe- as people's anxiety spikes and reach out. Um, of course, one of the biggest things that I see is we're just, when I look at the amount of time we're on the phone, it's just so much more, obviously, because that's where we're having to route everyone through. And I'm really happy that we you know, had a, a base of technology and actually through donations have been able to um, you know, we're working on adding some additional technology to keep more people engaged, be there to have those conversations. Typically, our response line is really focused on how, what are we doing for the next 24 to 48 hours until we can, we can see you in person um, and then work on the next 30 days. And so it's been very much of a shift to say the response line is all we got, guys. So let's talk about immediate needs and then let's make sure that somebody follows up, um, not in person, we're not waiting for them to meet with us, we're reaching out to make sure that we continue to have that longer conversation. And to be honest, I think those conversations have been much harder and more in depth because we don't know where we'll be in 30 days. And so just trying to talk about these are the possibilities, we're going to stay in this conversation with you, we're here if things change for you, whether that's three in the morning or three in the afternoon. Um, so trying to help people be connected in, in that way, really. When your staff, um, I, I know, and I've asked this question of, of others that I've had on the show, whenever you have uh, a, a fairly intensive um, um, job where you're perhaps uh, being uh, easily traumatized or affected uh, by what you're seeing. Um, self-care is a big thing. Um, mm-hmm. It's something that we're, we all try to talk about and take care of and make sure that the responders are not uh, going to suffer um, damage, if you will, because of what they're mm-hmm. exposed to. What are you doing um, to help safeguard uh, uh, your staff during this period? Because one of the things that I've noticed is that we're working on the phone a lot, and that mm-hmm. means we're not keeping the same hours that we kept before. At least I'm not. I mean, I'm looking. I mean, I'm. I, I'm just 
shocked. I keep thinking, wait a minute, I should be having <laughs> more time here. I should have more time. I don't have to get in the car. I don't even have to get dressed and do my hair, you know. Um, so why, why am I so busy, you know, from sun up to sun down at this point? And I think that that's mm-hmm. happening with a lot of people. So what are you and your, what is your particular organization doing um, to address some of those needs for the staff? Absolutely. So, um, you know, just trying to think about our schedule, particularly for our um, our advocates who are less used to the response line. Typically, we kind of, we have our response line people, that's the core of their duties, kind of they they have an understanding of that, that maybe some other teams who typically work in the courthouse nine to five, more in person, um, it's, a, it's a shift. And so we've worked on helping people shift. We're trying to, particularly those people who are, who are less used to being on the response line and people who may take those clients who feel like they do need someone to shepherd them through the first 30 days um, and are picking up clients as part of a broader caseload, we're limiting how much time they actually are answering incoming calls to give them some time to do some more of that case management. Um, I think we've been doing a lot of group chat (laughs) of just trying to make sure that everybody communicates and people don't get siloed and feel like they're alone in trying to manage this. Um, I mentioned kind of the training we had done last week. This Thursday, we actually spent about an hour of our staff meeting talking about self-care, kind of created like some very specific COVID self-care documents. Um, and and links to different resources that have been put out and shared um, with everything from mindfulness to um, just like simple things you can do, like take a walk to don't forget that you can do Netflix party and still watch your favorite shows with your friends. Um, so we've been trying to to connect those. We're um, we've we've been running for the past week, uh, encouraging people to share their best. Uh, work from home outfits (laughs) or their own top five tips um, just to try to get people thinking about it proactively as they work Um, and I know that I've been trying to check in you know weekly or bi-weekly with people just to see how are how are you doing what are your questions I know that um, what I told you last week isn't necessarily what I'm telling you this week. Do you feel secure um, in what you know? Um, I think that's one of the things that, at least in my experience in talking with the advocates, the, that they've really struggled with is, you know, as an advocate, you often pride yourself on being an expert on the resources that avail- are available and talking people through what choosing different paths of moving forward may look like. And we haven't been able to do that in the same way. And it really, it affects how you think of yourself in your work. Um, And so trying to reassure people that it's okay that you don't know right now. You're not going to know. It would be irresponsible to tell someone that you knew. I know that doesn't feel good, but that's okay. Um, Because I think that that has been something I see people struggle with. Yeah. Yeah, I can I can see that, especially in a time like this, you want to have the answers for folks. And if you don't, I imagine it could be very, very frustrating for you. Um, you had mentioned earlier in our conversation about technology and you were talking about mm-hmm. hardware and getting and, and bandwidth, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm 
listening to you, and I, I, mean, I was pretty familiar with Google's or with Zoom, um, and have mm-hmm. had teleconferences with that before and everything. But now all of a sudden, I had a meeting last night, and it was Google Meetups or something, and I mm-hmm. couldn't get the microphone to work, and I finally had a telephone <laughs> in. It's like, could we just do Zoom? I know that one. Le- you know, just leave me alone and let me keep my Zoom people. Um, are you finding a, a learning curve that's pretty pretty tough um, for some of this? I mean, not everybody is up to speed or has been up to speed on all these things. Sure. Um, I, I was the opposite of you where uh, our staff tends to work out of the Google suite of services, so Hangouts and Google Docs and everything like that, which I, I actually feel we were fairly lucky. So we work out of shared documents in the Google Drive all the time. So when we started to, to need to switch and be like, oh, my God, we need a central point of reference for all of our new COVID information, everybody's familiar with how to look. Um, I was not familiar with Zoom meetings. So that took me a couple meetings to figure out exactly what I was doing. <laughs> um, you know, I think one of the things that I see, because we don't, we, you know, we tend to try to bring staff together face-to-face more often is it, it's so much more awkward for people to be able to chime in in something like our meetings. So normally, you know, like any meeting with staff, it takes a second for people to warm up into conversations, but then we get going. Um, but it's it's so much harder to have that connection via meeting, um, particularly when you're going to have, you know, anywhere between 10 and 20 people on it. Um, it, it feels somehow a lot more risky to kind of put your voice out there. Um, you know, you end up talking over one another, and then there's that awkward silence after. Um, so I think that that's been one of the challenges. I think because we're so used to the Google Suite, we've been, um, you know, those group chats. That's where I see people kind of coming together a little bit more to have a group conversation. I I also think that might be reflective a little bit of a lot of our staff is going to fall between kind of that 23 to 28, 30 age range where working through text and working through chat is so much more uh, their their comfort zone. <laughs> me, people start all texting me together. I'm like, can someone just call me? Because I don't know what you're talking about anymore. <laughs> um, but I, I do think that there's a benefit to their youth and that they do feel a little bit more comfortable going through there. I, I do know anecdotally that we were talking yesterday in our meeting and, um, you know, we've we've had some staff express before, you know, taking remote work days or doing more remote work as an organization. Um, I think everybody at this point is like, I don't ever want to work remote again. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it it is, you know, and the work from home thing. We, we most of us who've never really been able to do that uh, consistently, you know, we always think that that's utopia. You know, work from home, woohoo! You know, and it does get Not old. so much. It's <laughs> old and it gets cumbersome. And uh, so I don't know. I'm uh, the jury's out for me. I don't know. I keep thinking, well, all of this isolation is going to basically reinforce the social isolation that we are already seeing in this digital age mm-hmm. where people don't talk on the phone. I mean, if you talk to a teenager and suggest that they actually <laughs> make a phone call, call you. Phone, yeah. There, I mean, I've, I, yeah. I've actually had a young, I, I, she was talking about this boy she liked or something. And I, I said, well, have you tried calling him? And she went, 
like on the phone. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, yeah. And she went, no, that would just be weird. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, you do know these things work for voices too, okay? Um, so part of me, part of me thinks that this whole situation is just going to reinforce that level of isolation that we've seen develop over the last few years. But another part of me thinks, maybe this is going to cure it. You know, <laughs> maybe people are going to say, no, no, let me, let me see people in the flesh here. Let me actually go out and talk with somebody. I and think see there's somebody. certainly going to be a new normal on the flip side of that. That is, that of all this, it's going to be very difficult to interpret and, I think that's yeah. something, too, to kind of circle around when you were asking earlier about call volume and things. I think what what we are going to see is as it goes on longer and as we get to the point where finally they start lifting restrictions, I think that's where we're going to see the flood. Um, I think that, you know, often we see this over, like, holiday weekends or if we have snow days um, where the the volume at the time tends to be light because everybody's a little shell-shocked and clustered in and is just keeping their head down. I think that the other side of this is going to be where it all comes out of the closet and everybody gets really busy. And so I'm trying to think about and even start anticipating that a little bit because I I do think we're going to see that a lot. Um, you had talked, uh, well, we had talked about um, different uh, ways that this has affected clients. One of the ways mm-hmm. that this is affecting all, all sorts of social service organizations is funding. Um, I know several organizations mm-hmm. that had to actually cancel um, fundraisers because of this, and um, mm-hmm. some organizations are doing well. They're seeing an uptick of you know, uh, socially people going, you know what, I want to support this organization. I'm just going to send them a check because I can. Um, but some organizations mm-hmm. don't have the level of support. What are you seeing in your organization? Yeah, um, so we actually, um, our uh, development director was talking about this yesterday. We, we have seen more of an uptick, at least in individual donors. Um you know, reaching out. And so that's really allowed us to have some flexible funds for things like that technology to try to be more robust in that area. Um, we do get a lot of funding through grants from the city to provide services, which I think we're also lucky to have somewhat some stability for that. So I think um, so I think it's, it's kind of a mix. Um, I think that we are having to provide things that we don't typically provide. We normally do a lot of work with our Crime Victims Compensation Program in D.C. here that helps fund our shelter stay, and they're still operating um, and still helping with that. But one of the things they typically do for our clients is just like wholesale assistance with some transportation through things like Metro cards and and grocery cards because everybody's in their own unit. They can buy their own groceries. They can make their own meals. um, And they're no longer operating in person, so they can't give those out. Um, so we're, we've been working on like how to cover that and make sure everybody, um, you know, has access to the grocery store. I think our clients are a lot more reluctant to hop on a bus right now, and we don't have the service that we're used to here in the city where many, many people do not drive. Um, and so 
you know, we've been trying to be more flexible and making sure we have the funds to do to do that on the flip side. So I think it's been a very interesting, you know, what is now costing more money, which which versus what is not, and then how we're getting that money and how flexible that money can be. Um, I think that's something that doesn't get a lot of attention often when we talk about domestic violence funding and how flexible sometimes you need to be. <laughs> so many grants have so many requirements written into them. Um, and I think in times like this, we really realize how how important flexible spending is. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like your particular um, um, form of offering shelter to victims uh, with their own apartments, that's that's really ideal because then they can maintain some dignity and they can maintain their, you know, I, I've never had to live in a shelter, thank goodness, but I had mm-hmm. to, I've several, and no matter how nice they try to be, you're still living, basically, basically you have become infantilized, infantile, is that mm-hmm. the right word, um, because you're living with other people and there have to be rules and there have to be this, that, and the other thing. And I always thought it must feel somewhat demeaning uh, for mm-hmm. a person who has been in her own home and who has been, you know, um, uh, um, the one who runs the show for her family and to suddenly be in a place where you have to list your medication or turn it over or, you know, different mm-hmm. things depending on the shelter. And so I've always thought that it was just, you know, certainly not ideal. <clears throat> and um, yeah. one of the things that um, uh, I'm happy to hear about is that some of these shelters that have moved to different, you know, separate uh, facilities and separate ways so that uh, that uh, victims can maintain some sort of level of autonomy and... and um, I've really, I've, I've seen the the whole gauntlet in that. When I started working in, in the organization Northwest Arkansas Women's Shelter in, in Arkansas, um, we had an old house. Um, it was it was a large house. It had five or six bedrooms, um, but it was a house. <laughs> and so um, families were in rooms with one another. There was one kitchen that, you know, you had to negotiate mm-hmm. when and how and who was cooking and when all the children yeah, come home at the same time. <laughs> and so yeah. even though, you know, you as much freedom as you can try to give people that that's really going to tighten down on on what happens and then while I was there we transitioned we had a an old hospital that had gone out of service and the community was turning it into a um kind of a, a hub of community service access so the community college uh, the health department um things like that and we were able to secure two wings of it for our clients and just being able to put everyone in their own room, even with the shared kitchen space, was just like, oh, my God. Um, and then while we were there, we were just we evolved our services quite a bit in terms of no more curfew. What's the point? Um, I'm, I don't want your meds anymore. Let's get safes in all the rooms. Um, and then now coming here to D.C. Safe, where really we're able to put people in those, you know, this is where you're staying. It's your unit for you and your kids and you know we're going to come in and check on it just to make sure that you know the the toilet hasn't exploded everywhere but it's your space um and and we don't have curfews and we don't have a requirement that you tell us necessarily where you're going as long as we know that you're using the unit that's you know and 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 that you keep it confidential that's what we ask 
Um, so being able to see that change, it's, it's so nice to give people that freedom and that level of comfort. And so many other organizations, not necessarily organi organizations, but again, the more formal institutions don't just are like, what? <laughs> You're doing what now? Who? Um, but it really is, it, it really is a blessing. Yeah. You know, the whole situation with domestic violence, um, with, uh, and, and again, I pick your term, we all know what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> but the whole situation with that revolves, in my view, around powerlessness, creating it in someone mm -hmm. and suffering from it uh, for somebody else. How has this virus, this health situation, affected that sense of powerlessness and has that in turn affected victims or um, survivors differently, do you think, mm -hmm. from what you've seen? I definitely think that the idea of moving about is being as a being used as a tool against um, survivors. So, you know, the idea that you know, especially when you talk about the the jealousy um, and controlling behavior, you know, being able to say, well, you even going to the store puts our family at risk. Like, it just gives one more tool to that abusive partner to try to control movement of people. But I think kind of on the flip side for, for survivors themselves, as they're thinking about what their options are, um, you know, I think one of the things we experience in normal times is when I tell people, you know, we do have shelter, we can take you in shelter, people tend to be like, oh, no, no, like, I don't want to be in a shelter because they have a picture of a cot in the middle of a gym with eight other people in an extremely sad way. Um, and we usually have to be really clear, like, no, you have your own unit, you can stay in your own place. But now I think that anxiety around going into someone else's living space is just even higher. Um, and so, you know, I think people are making this very hard calculus that I think every survivor is making all the time of what do I risk here in my house? What do I risk if I leave? And one of the risks that you're facing now if you leave is the possibility that you could get sick, that your kids could get sick, that you could get someone else sick, that you know, this quarantine may go on forever, and then how do you move forward with your life? I think particularly when we think about, and I know we've talked to some clients about this, they've lost their job or they've been let, laid off. And so, you know, I can't stay in the house with him. I'm going to seek shelter, but then where do I, how do I get a place? I don't have a job. Um, and so, you know, I think that both the, the risk and the and the hard decisions people are making of is this the right time to get out the door um, is even harder now. But then I think also, you know, I think we hear from people more of a hopelessness about, you know, I'm really happy that I was able to land here and think about next steps, but I have no idea what I can do next. Um, and mm -hmm. so we've just been trying to really work with people uh, around that and, and, you know, I think we are blessed to be in a community that, that has some really good, robust homeless services, um, and we've got a good relationship with that system. So, you know, we've been able to work with that for singles and families, but it doesn't change the fear that people have around it, which was always present and is now amplified. Okay. So you are seeing that amplified. 
in response to that, have you been able to implement any change in your programs or change in, in counseling to address that? Or has, has it been overwhelming enough just to try to maintain services that you've already? You know, I do. I do think that one has been a little um, rough. Typically at our shelter, one day a week, we have a counselor who comes and provides in-house services um, one evening that people can sign up for and access, which is now, of course, we're, we're not trying to be <laughs> in the same room with people. Um, but we have, we work with um, the Went Center pretty regularly, which is a, a counseling around grief and loss. Um, and then also we have a good relationship with another organization that's called Jakarta that has a, a counseling line. Um, so we've been really trying to encourage people to reach out to those organizations over the phone. Um, we have been sitting in on as many meetings with different government <laughs> services like the, uh, um, behavioral health services and other things as much as we can so that we stay up to date on where the resources are and what they look like. So that, you know, if we know someone has a solid connection to services, reminding them that it's not gone, because I think that's the other thing, too, when we when we all and I think we do this to all this is not unique to survivors. When we get nervous and we get in our heads, we tend to forget that we have some resources. And so I think a lot of what we're doing is just trying to remind people it's not impossible. It may be more hard, but it's not impossible. And how can we make it feel less hard than it feels right now? Um, and trying to, to facilitate some of that as much as we can. Um, Kylie, I've had my list of questions and things that I'm interested in. We have a few minutes left. Have I missed something uh, that you think it's important to share with our audience? I think one of the things, you know, I've, I've been talking to different organizations and different agencies, and um, it's sort of something that is near and dear to my heart. Um, is that I often think when people talk about advocacy and they talk about domestic violence, there's so much of an interest in shelter. It's a huge piece. It's an important piece. It's a needed piece. But one of the things I often find myself reminding people about is that just information and the ability to give people information and to give it in a non-judgmental way is to me kind of right at the core of what advocacy does. Um, and so, like I said, when I talked about how our, our advocates struggle about not, not feeling like they have the expertise they once did, I've also done a lot of praising of them as that, you know, we stayed consistent, we stayed answering the phone, we committed to having the most up-to-date information to be able to share with people and to be able to give it honestly. And even though sometimes when you talk to people and you, you don't have a magic wand to fix a particular problem, don't discount the fact that you gave them information that's going to be helpful to them moving forward, that may get them a little bit closer to their goals, um, and, and that you are able to give it and be there to give it without saying you should do this or you should do that. Being able to be available and talk to people, this is what we have, this is what it might look like makes it so much easier for people to move forward. And I think particularly now, <laughs> that is especially important just to be able to tell people, this is what's available. This is what we're hearing it looks like. This is how we can help you access it. Um, plays such an essential role. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. 
One of the things that I worry about is continued training for advocates during this time. Uh, do you, so there's so much else to do. Do you find that some of the training mm-hmm. has been pushed aside a little bit? Yeah, I think it, I think it's been a little bit more challenging. I think we're trying as much as possible to offer people that opportunity. We, we usually as a staff meet twice a month to do some training. Um, I think a, a lot of what we're, we're training on now is just actually trying to make sure people are abreast of, of changes to services that we hear. So time that we may have spent for an hour bringing in a partner organization to talk in depth about something maybe now. Um, hey, last week we said this was how people were filing. This is what we're doing now. Let's talk about DHS. Um, and so I think it's as things have shifted, it's been a little bit more of a moving target. My hope is that <laughs> once we have all adjusted to what this wonderful new normal is, um, that we'll be able to re- restructure a little bit. And, and like I said, one of the things we've been trying to do, even for people who are answering the phone or people who are supporting the people answering the phones, is give them some time built into their week where they can do some more things like webinars, be able to, you know, read through documents, be able to take some of that time. Because to me, whenever I do training, it always refreshes and recenters my interest in this field. And so I think we've been trying to give them some time both through our own efforts, but then independently to do that when we can. But I think it's, it's taken about three weeks to feel like, kind of like you talked about, like we have the opportunity to, to get a schedule and to feel normal. So my hope is moving forward that will be more robust. I think it's been a hit or miss <laughs> as we figure out how this is all going to work. It's an amazing time. One brief question. You don't have to spend a lot of time on it if you don't want to, but you're supervising. You're, you're in charge. Mm-hmm. How is this impacting you? Is it impacting you any differently because of that role? It's, I think that just trying to, and particularly, like I said, over the past two weeks of things have been a little bit moving targets, just how do I get the information to the staff? How do I get it to them in a way that they understand? How do I keep updating them without being like, hey, change this every two days? <laughs> um, so we've done a lot of, of different ways and, and trying to be in touch with one another. Um, just also to as well as you know we can set our own policies and procedures so you know the first week especially i think every day myself and the directors of the other programs were having conversations around what are you hearing what does this look like to try to go back um i think part of this is being director and part of this is just me um it's been hard it's been harder for me to say okay i'm done for the day um, as opposed to where you you know you pack up and you leave your office <laughs> and and you're out you know you you've got your little home desk space and you're like okay I think I'm gonna sign off now and you get like that one more email bing that one more chat come through um, and and you're just not separated from it in the same way and so. I both want to be there for my staff because I know this is a challenging moment for them and I want them to have the support, but then also, okay, girl, it's time to cut it off (laughs) and put it down and we'll be okay until tomorrow. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I worked from home when my children were growing. And so this is not a new situation for me. And, uh, but it, it, it's interesting to go go back there um, and uh, all that you do because you're absolutely right. And and you do end up, um, you know, okay, gosh, this is day four and I haven't washed my hair, you know. <laughs> because absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Kylie, thank you so much uh, for sharing with us. You're very welcome. Things, how, you know, this is a crazy time and, and we can't mm-hmm. forget um, – that sometimes it's crazier for others than we can imagine. And we are yeah. thankful that there are places like DC safe and people like you uh, to help in that situation. So thank you for uh, letting us hear about your, your daily life and what you're struggling with and for also presenting it in such a positive and optimistic way. I really appreciate that because we all need that right now. I think that's we? the only way. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been, I've been working on that with my staff too. I know this is frustrating, but we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to figure it out. And um, I think big thanks to everybody out there who's, who's still working, who's still providing services and is trying to do it as seamlessly as they can. It's, not easy and I know that we are not alone in being an organization being on top of this so big shout out to all the advocates out there still doing their thing (laughs) right and thanks to all those people who are not necessarily advocates but who have the uh, resources and the capability of helping to support organizations like this even during these difficult times there's a lot of people that need help out there so um, if you can share do it and um, I would say share with the dangerous the people that are fighting against dangerous stuff first that's just my thing yeah Kylie thank you so much and I hope you come back after I hope you come back (laughs) after this whole thing after this whole Armageddon thing is over and share with us how things are shaking out and what that new normal is and thank you absolutely to three women, three ways. See you next week.